I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome back to Trafe, the only Jewish podcast with a host who may or may not be the heir to the Big Pen fortune. Are, are you talking about yourself? Are you the heir to the Big Ben fortune? Well, I mean, I put the uncertainty in our header to kind of sow confusion, so I don't really want to answer in the affirmative or the negative. I'm a little surprised this is the first that I'm hearing of it. Stay tuned, listeners. But welcome back to the show, everybody. Yes, welcome. Thank you for tuning in to this April episode of Trafe Podcast. It turns out this is episode 43, David. That is true. It is springtime in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, mm-hmm. and um, I'm loving it. Uh, Sam, I have some bad news for you. Yes, David? Uh, so McDonald's, <laughs> clearly your favorite company, I guess, uh, recently acquired uh, technology from some Israeli firms and I think technically fall within the uh, the BDS framework that we often talk about on this show. Uh, so you might have to change your catchphrase. I take that back from the record, but the sentiment still stands. Yeah, uh, but you're enjoying the springtime? It's fantastic. And I, I got a bunch of new stretches for my back problems. Um, I'm feeling great. I'm doing more glute-based exercises because apparently your glutes are connected to your lower back. Oh, cool. Yep. Uh, so what do we do on this show, Sam? Okay, David, let's start with the bare bones. We talk to people. We talk to each other. Very true. What else do we do? We talk about radical politics. <laughs> and we are both Jewish. That is correct. And sometimes we talk about things that are very specifically about Jewishness. Sometimes we don't. And this year, we decided to try something new with this new series approach to the podcast. We're uh, technically in the middle of our fascism series right now. Yes. uh, The first episode came out about two months ago, and we have at least two or three more planned. However, something exciting happened in the last month, and we kind of had to interrupt it. Yeah, so one thing that we're going to continue doing uh, throughout this year that we've done in the past is that when the opportunities arise, we try to have conversations with people who we identify as movement elders, and an opportunity did arise. Yes, we had the pleasure to drive down to Buffalo to chat with David Gilbert, who's a political prisoner and an all-around wonderful human being. Mm -hmm. And this is a particularly long episode And so if you're just pulling up into your driveway or (laughs) planning to get off the bus in several stops, maybe you shouldn't be playing this right now. Um, Or or, or you do you. But uh, (laughs) if if you're a longtime listener of the show, you probably remember us mentioning David Gilbert's name before. He's written several books, including Love and Struggle, uh, which we've specifically mentioned. So if you are a new listener or if you've never heard of David Gilbert before, he was a member of a group called the Weather Underground. Um, And if you haven't heard of this group before, you should check out an interview we did with Laura Whitehorn, who was also a member of the group. There's a phenomenal documentary on YouTube. And there's also a great book written by Dan Berger. We have all of these references in the show notes. So maybe read and listen to these things before continuing. But you can also continue if you want to. Mm -hmm. And David's a political prisoner. He's been in prison for over 35 years as a result of his participation in an action organized by a Black Liberation Army cell that was targeting an armored Brinks truck in 1981. Uh, The action went awry. It was one of a series of expropriations that was undertaken at that time for the Black Liberation struggle. Unfortunately, this action led to the deaths of several people, uh, and there was a wave of oppression against black radicals that happened afterward. And it's really important to keep in mind that David is just one of many people who ended up doing time for this action, including several BLA members, such as Kwaisi Balagoon and Matulu Shakur. And again, if you've never heard of the Black Liberation Army before, uh, you might have heard of Asada Shakur, who was a member. It was actually a, a BLA cell who broke her out of jail. 
And there's way more to the history of the BLA that we can get to here, uh, but we will post links to a lot of resources in the show notes today. So that's a little bit about David, and I think it gives some context for the interview that's coming. Uh, it's quite confusing that both David and David have the name David, um, but we all got through it. Um, and yeah, so about a month and a half ago now, David and I drove down to a town just east of Buffalo um, to a prison called Wende Correctional Facility. Yeah, it's a maximum security prison, and we are given a small room to sit in with David uh, for just over an hour. So if you're wondering what the background noise is, it's because we are sitting with David in a prison. So without further ado, this is your episode of Trafe for the 24th of Nissan 5779. My name is Dave Gilbert. I've been in prison, New York State prison, for 37 years now, 37 and a half. I'm an anti-imperialist political prisoner, which means that the situation that led to my being in prison came out of struggle against a range of social injustice. And it's funny to define yourself as anti, anti-imperialism, but that's a reflection of how much domination and oppression defines the current society. I'm really pro-people. I'm for all people of the world and everybody to have a chance to flourish and against all the ways people are limited and abused and demeaned. So uh, imperialism to me is the best way to sum up those structures of domination, even though it involves uh, male supremacy and homophobia and destruction of the environment. But in terms of a rapacious global economic system backed up by incredible violence, I think imperialism is the best way to summarize it. And uh, I've been anti-racist, anti-imperialist for 50 years now, six, 55. I, you know, I first became conscious in 1960 with the civil rights movement, so it goes back a ways. Um, so we have a lot of questions. Uh, we definitely want to talk about anti-imperialism as a frame, and we'll, okay. we'll, we'll get there. Um, but we want to start in Brookline, uh, where okay. you grew up. You know, you grew up in uh, upper middle class, you know, white family in the 1950s. Um, and it was specifically a Jewish family. Yes, for sure. And I, I'm just wondering if you see a relationship between that part of your upbringing and your political trajectory that you're, you're talking about. Sure. I mean, of course, there's a relationship, and I'm not sure how to unpack it in a reasonable length of time, but uh, my parents definitely weren't left. They were children of immigrants who had fled the pogroms in Eastern Europe. They were very principled, decent people. They, work, they believed in community. My father was the Boy Scout leader in the community. My mother was a Girl Scout leader in the community. And, and they were ethical people. And so I grew up with a sense of community service. They, as children of immigrants who fled oppression, and then my father put himself through night school, you know, working and became an engineer and had a decent paying job, 
they were very loyal to America. And it wasn't, I wasn't brought up with a critique, except probably because of sensitivity to oppression of Jews. They did teach me racism was wrong and that you should respect all people. So I grew up in a way naive because I thought democracy, freedom and justice for all equality, that's what America was. And I thought that was terrific. You know, before I could vote, I was aware of different candidates and what their platforms were and all these things uh, about really wanting to live in a democracy and make it work. And then my eyes got opened by the civil rights movement. The thing I remember is the Greensboro sit-in. And then that led to a wave of stuff. So I said, whoops, it isn't quite equality for all. During that time that you're talking about, um, there's been a lot written about um, the disproportionate amount of white Jews who are a part of different white left formations at that right. time. And I'm curious what your take is on that. Sure. I mean, given Jews' percentage in the population, I think in the white population, something like 3%. And if you went to SCS meetings, it would be like 35%. And really, I think, I mean, this isn't a scientific survey, but my impression is the more people emphasize anti-racism, because obviously there are a range of issues, the more the disproportionate amount of Jews were. So I think definitely there's a link to Jews having, if not directly experience racism, anti-Semitism, that overhanging our reality and our culture and our situation. I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it might have been someone who was in the Weather Underground. It might have been uh, Mark Rudd wrote about growing up in a family that had Holocaust survivors in it or or just talked about the Holocaust quite a bit, sort of um, prepared him in some psychological way for underground work, that there was some some disconnect between living in mainstream American society compared to that upbringing that so emphasized those earlier struggles. Um, Does that resonate at all for you? It's an interesting point, and I can see it. It's not the way I experienced it growing up. And again, I grew up with this tremendous commitment to democracy, and then I wanted to make America live up to its ideals. And so, no, there was no sense until a long time of struggle and heavy repression that something like an underground would be appropriate. But the Holocaust is obviously one of the most horrendous things in history and is a tremendous trauma for anybody who feels at all related. It should be for everybody who feels a sense of humanity, but particularly for Jews, we're aware of that. There were two types of conclusions that people took. One is we have to have ours at whatever cost, and that's what led to Zionism. The other was the greatest evil in the world is racism. And the imperative for us is to oppose racism. For whatever reason, that's where I was at. That's how I understood it. The lesson was anti-racism, anti-oppression, and passionately so. So I think, yes, the trauma of the Holocaust and the lesson for many of us that the racism is the worst evil and most dangerous phenomenon in the world had an impact on and led to a disproportionate number of Jews, I say disproportionate, not enough. It should be everybody, everybody who wants to be a human being should be anti-racist. But uh, in terms of the movements, yes. Um, so in your book, uh, Love and Struggle, and also in the writing that I've read of yours, you, you talk about your sisters and you talk about your parents. 
And so you, you already talked about this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on the role that Zionism played growing up. I know in the book you talk about something that happened with your sister when you were, I think, Well, that was your, later. Your, yeah, yeah, later. But, but growing up, what was... Well, I grew up, you know, we weren't orthodox, but we did have a kosher home and I went to Hebrew school. And I learned, and I had no reason to doubt it, that Israel was a shining democracy, the only democracy in the Mideast and had made the desert bloom, which turns out not to be true. Many of these areas have been blooming already. But uh, this fit with my belief in democracy and my being inculcated in Western values. So I had no reason to doubt it. Again, we weren't organized Zionists or marching for things. Although, you know, my parents bought Israel bonds for me. I had Israel bonds and and my bar mitzvah gifts. that's how I was brought up, and that's what I believed. Actually, it was before the 67 war that I started to have a little doubt. And my big oldest sister, who was six years older than me, went to visit Israel. And when she came back, she said, I was really surprised the way they treat the Arab citizens of Israel is the way they treat blacks in this country. People get followed around, they can't go on certain beaches, boom, boom, boom. So it was, you know, it was around 1960. So that was the first thing that led some doubt. But it, back then we still didn't use the word Palestine. It was sort of Arab citizens of Israel and the takeover of the land and what all that meant. I, uh, I wasn't really aware of that because my sister, who incidentally in the 67 war, she went the opposite way, becoming rabid Zionist. And I said to her, you know, they drop napalm on people. You know what that means. And she said, war is war. So even though she was the one who had clued me in that there was a problem with racism, when the sort of push came to shove, for whatever reason, she identified with Israel. The point of becoming anti-Zionist was the 67 war because that was such a dramatic and violent event. So much land was seized. And as with every war, you know, the aggressors always have their, you know, their weapons of mass destruction or the Tonkin Gulf incident that that excuse it. But by this time, we were identifying with the national liberation movements around the world. In Africa, Latin America, and Asia, people who had been colonized were rising up to take back control not only of their governments but of their economies. So in that framework, I was ready to identify not with Israel, but to identify with the people that they were occupying and taking over. So that's the point. And it wasn't before then that I became consciously anti-Zionist. So but I'm already 23 at that age. You know, I became politically conscious at 15. So in, in Love and Struggle, you write about uh, seeing Malcolm X speak at Barnard just uh, three days before he died. Yes. Um, and you write about how most of the audience's questions were about black anti-Semitism. Right. And in preparing for the interview and rereading the book, it was just so wild that today in 2019, this framing and this narrative is still so front and center. Well, we have a new round of it. I mean, maybe we should, we'll get to talk about that. I mean, all the attacks on Ilan Omar, it's become this incredible cudgel against opposing Zionism by charging anti-Semitism. Back then, it was a little bit of a different framework because Jews 
clearly not all Jews, or even most Jews, but relative to a white ethnic population, more sympathetic to civil rights, there was a significant amount of Jewish support for civil rights. And I think there was a conscious strategy to break that off. Oppressors rule by creating divisions and maintaining divisions among the oppressed because the vast majority of people have a fundamental interest in a very different type of social system. And the vast majority of people are oppressed in one way or another. And so when there's some unity forming, and we know with COINTELPRO, the one operation against especially the black movement, but the left that we've been able to get documentation on, one of their main strategies was to create divisions and very antagonistic divisions among people. We found out later that Norman Poderatz had uh, written an article, I think as early as 63, about this is such a major problem. And he had been a liberal or social democrat who became a neoconservative and helped pave the way for Ronald Reagan. So whether this was his own initiative or a more developed strategy, I don't know. But there was a conscious effort to break off liberal Jewish support for the civil rights movement and played on the fact that many Jews are in there were racist too, or even those of us who were trying to be anti-racist weren't free of the things we got brought up with. And of course, very uptight about, for good reason, for any showing of anti-Semitism. But what an experience it was, because here was this gift. I had never seen anybody speak as clearly about the nature of the world and what needs to happen. And he's there saying, it's not white versus black, it's oppressed versus oppressor. That's how we have to understand the world. And it happens that most of the oppressors are white and most of the oppressed are people of color. But you're not biologically bound by that. I forget the phrase he were. He said he pointed to John Brown as a, as a, as a white that he supported and like. And then people laughed at him when he said, I've been up all night because my home was firebombed and I had to get my family out. And people said, oh, he's just making that up to look dramatic. And of course, three days later, he was killed. So I'm, I'm just thinking about the, the alliances that you're talking about that were trying to be broken at that time. And, you know, a good portion of your outside political work was based on an approach of, you know, sort of formal allyship yes. with revolutionary, you know, black, indigenous, people of color groups. And I'm, I'm wondering if your politics around this have changed over time. Yes, I think fundamental to social change is allying with people of color within the United States and people in the global south globally. And for those of us, even those of us who are consciously anti-racist, there are a lot of lessons to learn because the culture is so deeply ingrained that we grew up in. I exactly how you form allyship and what third world leadership or people of color leadership means, it's not a clear blueprint on that. You know, you don't become yes sir or whatever you are, yes ma'am. You know, you have to have your political understanding, although a lot of my political understanding developed from studying and appreciating what the national liberation struggles were doing and what the black struggle was doing in the U.S. or the Native American. Of course, a lot has changed. The most dramatic thing that's changed is national liberation struggles haven't been able to build socialism by and large. And that is something that takes a lot of in-depth analysis and I'm not going to try to do here except to say 
It's a combination of how powerful imperialism is and especially its stranglehold on the world economy. And if they don't like a country, they can cut off finance because all finance goes through the U.S. dollar and the U.S. banks. And then they say, look, look at how messed up that economy is, doing that to Venezuela now. But I think that also the model that national liberation led by a vanguard party could lead to socialism has internal weaknesses too. I still think the main confrontation in the world is between imperialism. People, you know, corporations and banks and governments and military of the rich countries and their allies, the stooges in the third world, and the people of the world. So I still think that's the main contradiction. But national liberation struggle as a form of struggle hasn't been adequate. There's a lot to say about that. But just to say in what's influenced my own politics, I think we learned we had to pay a lot more attention to patriarchy and sexism and homophobia and obviously environmental issues have become, you know, we were a little bit aware of environment. Uh, certainly me with my Boy Scout and outdoors and camping experience <laughs> was aware of it, but we didn't understand in 1968 what an overriding political and social issue. So I think in terms of how my politics have changed, yes, we have to pay a lot more attention to the range of oppressions that overlap in terms of the structure of the system. We have to understand that we grew up in this society, so we have to struggle with sexism in ourselves, or homophobia in ourselves, or arrogant, or class elitism for those of us who had the benefit of college background. And I think in terms of model of organization, which is one area where you probably still have some differences, the vanguard party democratic centralism which sounded good in theory and you know we adopted from the third world national liberation struggles I have to say it doesn't work and I think there's a lot of experimenting that was going on and one place that was going on was Venezuela which has now been wrecked uh, in terms of uh, building cooperatives and having community councils and assemblies and, you know, much more grassroots democracy and participation. So there's a fair amount of experimentation. I think the women's movement pushed to develop something in a less hierarchical form. But I think, you know, given what we're up against, people still have to be highly organized as a role for leadership. So I would say those are questions that I still don't have clear-cut answers for myself and just looking at what people are doing and what we can learn from So one of the things I admire a lot about your writing is you do a lot of reflection um, and talk about the ways that often you made mistakes um, in the past as well as the aspects of the struggle that continue to be relevant and inspiring. Right. Um, Good. Thank you. And I know that um, you've written about having at different times fallen into what you described as white interventionism. And I'm wondering if you can can share some of those reflections for people now. Yeah, I mean... We have a general principle about a lying and realistically radical or revolutionary third world group is going to know more about their situation, what needs to be done, and probably about political and social change overall than we know from our background. But it doesn't mean you're subservient, you're an active, engaged political person. So there's a general thing about allying with people of color organizations under their leadership 
that principle, how you implement it in a complex reality, there is no blueprint that I know of. I mean, we can identify errors. And uh, just to identify two errors that I was personally involved in, I think WUO, you know, it was a time when all the radical and revolutionary black groups were nationalists. And for good reasons, they didn't want whites in their organization because it is a history of just unconscious cultural manipulation, and that got played out in SNCC. But as an independent white revolutionary organization, at some points we sort of lost direction, which is common. And it's not that we had to be merged to one organization, but it would have been healthier if we'd had more dialogue and learned more from what they were doing. And in reaction to that, you know, the model I had when I in the formation that led to this bus, it was sort of like, okay, you know, it's a service station mentality, just give us the orders, and us is not the reason why. So, you know, some people in the movement like to think of themselves as dialectic, but many times we're just negating one error with the opposite error. So the way to correct for what Weather did wrong are getting too separated from those struggles and then succumbing to some degree to white and male supremacy was to work with a revolutionary black organization and be under their leadership and sort of not have political discussions about the strategy or what was appropriate about one's role or whatever. It was just sort of, okay, here, this is what you do in this moment. So that that's like a service station. Can I put gas? I don't know if they still do this. Can I put gas in your car or wash your windshield? It, it was that mentality, not a political alliance where you're getting leadership, but there's a political dialogue and give and take. And that also leads can lead to disaster. So just to switch gears a little bit, um, David and I have noticed that a lot of anti-racist work in organizing in the recent past five, ten years has really been focused on anti-fascist organizing. And I was wondering if this is something you've seen before or kind of how you're understanding it. I mean, racial scapegoating was always central to U.S. politics, and especially after the 60s and the advances of the 60s. I mean, that was Nixon's whole Southern strategy. But it's at a high pitch now. So there's a greater danger of fascism because a combination of frustration of a wide range of whites who feel they got screwed by neoliberalism and the way that's being mobilized. I mean, we on the left criticized neoliberalism from the beginning, going back to the 70s when it was arising. But of course, we're not given much of a voice in society. And now the right has capitalized on it. And the classic approach is racial scapegoating. I mean, immigrants aren't taking people's jobs. Downsizing and merges and automation and exploiting third world labor is taking people's jobs. But because of the history of white supremacy and the way many, uh, a majority of whites have bought into it to some degree, it's very easy to do racial scapegoating. And in a way, it's easier for people to take out their frustration on someone who's weaker than them. You can get some satisfaction by stomping on immigrants. Whereas if you take on the banks and corporations and the military and government, it's, you, you end up in here, you know. So 
what's characterized as the left or Hillary Clinton or something like that <laughs> is you know represents neoliberalism. So there's a range of frustrations. And the economy and environmental catastrophe is going to get a lot worse. So those frustrations are going to get worse. So I think there's a real danger about fascism, which was always there. The mainstream ruling class probably would prefer to rule by passivity and manipulation. But if push comes to shove, and eventually the businesses came over to the Nazis, they prefer fascism, which is still pro-corporate, than socialism, which would wipe them out as a class. So they've always allowed the far right to exist as a small, as irrational as it is, as a small potential force. And then, of course, a lot of the more direct forces of repression, like police and people in the army, are allied with those. And that's capitalism's fallback if things unravel. And there's a danger that it could be socialism. So fascism is more of a danger. Anti-fascism is a little bit more on the agenda. There's still a trap there. As righteous as it is to oppose fascism, to shout them down and to have them go back to the, into the woodwork, we don't want to get boxed into this, this boxing match between the far left and the far right. Because the main enemy is capitalism the broad ruling class who's creating the economic conditions is fanning all these frustrations. And if it's the extreme left and extreme right having boxing matches, most people aren't going to sympathize or care. We need to be coming out with an economic program that speaks to some of these frustrations. Now, dangerous, tricky to do. I won't say dangerous, tricky to do because it's a history of white union organizing that sold out people of color, that consolidated white privileges. But there are ways to do it that ally with the people who are most oppressed, or even that have struggles that are leading around this, justice for janitors, or $15 minimum wage, or environmental justice. So I like it whenever the fascists are shouted down or surrounded by so many counter-demonstrators, they go back. But I'm saying our main job is to oppose imperialism, oppose capitalism, and to develop a program that gets at least some sectors of white workers as strong as the tradition and history of white supremacy is to see that their interests really lie with a line with people of color and people in the global south. I mean, I think it's probably an appropriate time to tell anyone listening who isn't familiar that you actually wrote a book about the history of the U.S. white working class and yes. part of the way that it's yes. often romanticized by certain elements of the left, certain ways that it's, you know, uh, sold out people of color. And part of that book is focused on imperialism. And I've noticed that there's been a notable retreat from internationalism on the part of the organized left. Um, at least in the U.S. and Canada, uh, with more of a focus on domestic concerns. And so imperialism doesn't seem to be talked about as much. It's a horrible retreat, and it's going to be self-defeating in the long run. And I know when I, when I rant and rave to the, I'm in touch with a lot of younger activists, when I rant and rave about internationalism, well, the people who would write me or visit me are somewhat aware of this stuff. But they say it's very hard, you know, to engage people because it seems so distant. But, you know, the U.S. is engaged in seven wars right now. 
there are at least seven countries where U.S. is doing drone bombing strikes. There's this regime change juggernaut that's going against Venezuela and with Nicaragua and Cuba and the sites. Now, I know historically the left had made an, the old left had made an error of being an apologist for Stalin, so people don't want to repeat. But you don't have to be an apologist for the regime to say, U.S. hands off. You know, Saddam Hussein was a bad enough ruler, and incidentally, the U.S. and CIA helped put him in power and gave him chemical weapons to use against Iran. But it's not that the U.S. intervention made things better for the people of Iraq, and it's not even an issue that it's a complete disaster. Libya is a complete disaster. They're selling people into slavery. It's ruled by competing militias. Uh, the education and health care that was available, the public life for women is all gone. And you can go down to Yemen and Somalia and every place the U.S. has intervened has created this incredible level of human misery and destruction. And yeah, the military industry is a big source of, of jobs. Although for the amount of investment, it's not a high intensive employment. It would be much better if it was invested in healthcare or environmental remediation. It's really about a trillion a year they spend on the military in an war. If you think what could be done with that. So, after you left WUO uh, and moved to Denver, you started Men Against Sexism, the group, or you were involved in, in the formation of that group. And there's been a good amount of writing about the ways that the Weather Underground and, and the broader anti-imperialist left failed to prioritize challenging patriarchy, um, often opposing efforts led by women in the movement, and, and you, you write about that in, in Love and Struggle. Can you talk a bit about your journey on this issue and and what the work of challenging patriarchy has looked like for you inside for the last 37 and a half, you said? 36 and a half? 37 and yeah. a half. Yeah. That's a double question, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to <laughs> unpack there. Uh, yeah, the weather, WO and the anti pierce left was definitely still very sexist, very male supremacist. Uh, although... Certainly not as bad as the overall society, but for people who sided with the oppressed, it was still a tremendous blind spot. And compared to other left, I'll say we had definitely stronger women's leadership, but it wasn't really translated into a, you know, there are two levels when you want to struggle against sexism in the left. One is how people interact and your, you know, your relationships, human relationships. And the other is your program, which they're both important and they would reinforce each other. But your program is, if anything, is even more important. I think we needed more of a feminist influence on forms of struggle and forms of organization that were less hierarchical. So I think we had some internal struggle and in the later years started to have some program around women. So we were somewhat influenced. But early on, we tended to be dismissive and, you know, of a white women's movement that wasn't anti-imperialist. So it's really an unfortunate loggerhead because the two things go together. And there was really a bridge that developed, which was the women of color movement, Cumbahee River Statement and stuff like that. But we weren't attuned enough to that, whether because we weren't anti-sexist enough and also we were somewhat isolated. 
So when weather fell apart, the analysis that I was one to was we fell apart because of white and male supremacy, that we didn't, weren't strong enough an ally or didn't continue to be a strong enough ally of black and other people of color struggle. And we still had a male-dominant culture and program, despite some changes that began. When a friend of mine who, when I got to Denver, the person who'd been most receptive to my sort of position around anti-imperialism and anti-racism among the white, small white left community, started Men Against Sexism and invited me in. And I did become a charter member, but I agonized for a while because I was still cautious about a group that was white and not explicitly anti-imperialist. So this sort of division still existed. And there was certainly a division between the sort of white feminist left and the people of color organizations in Denver. And after agonizing, I decided to do it because I needed to work on those issues. And it turned out to be a really good group and really helpful. And in the process of all of us talking from our hearts and about reality, it became anti-racist and anti-imperialist too. So uh, became a main source of uh, white allies for the Chicano, Mexicano group in Denver. And I think the feminist mentors we had said, the most important thing you can do is solidarity, like childcare for women's acts. And, and we did a lot of that, and it was fun. It was good, challenging too, but fun. Uh, so those were, were lessons and later on, when I was relating to the new wave of activism, you know, and I'm a prisoner and I'm writing people, I assumed that there's tremendous advances had been made in the movement from these struggles and lessons. And I was shocked at how backward things still were, or at least the people that I talked to. Uh, I met someone who had been sexually assaulted, and when she brought it up, she was the one who was ostracized. Men weren't doing childcare. So to the degree I had a voice to some segment of people, I tried to speak out about it. I don't know how much good it did. In prison, I began to understand how much homophobia is rooted in patriarchy and male supremacy. That it's not like we have uh, oppression of women, we have oppression of gays. Because, you know, guys joke with each other. And back then the joke was, I'm going to make you my bee. I'm going to turn you into someone I can sexually exploit. And then I realized the guys were terrified of homosexuality because they didn't want to be in a, the female position, which is the inferior position, which is less than human. So that was quite a lesson, just how much there's this terror that a guy might feel I might be underneath it all gay, and that makes me like a female, and that, that's totally inferior and subject to abuse. And twice I wrote, and they were, in those days there were prison newspapers, and I wrote about it. And not the most hardcore feminist line, but basically saying what women want is what we want, respect, as a way to sort of get it across. And individual guys would say, oh, I really like what you wrote. But it didn't have a major impact. And, and I'm not, at this point, I'm not like an organizer in prison anymore. You know, so I'll have talks with individuals. But because I'm respected, usually the individual will say something pretty decent, but it doesn't mean that that's 
how he talks when he's with a group. I had one friend who was close enough to me and respected me on other grounds where I spoke to him about it. And again, he was reasonable with me, but then... So talking about your, your time inside, there's a book coming out soon, which I'm sure you know, but people listening might not know. Uh, which is like a new expanded edition of Kwesi Balagoon's writing. Oh, yes, yes. Um, wow. And, you know, for people who don't know, Kwesi was a member of the Black Panther Party. He was part of the Panther 21 case, a uh, member of the Black Liberation Army, uh, one of your co-defendants in the Brinks case. And uh, Kwesi was also an anarchist. You know, both of us are anarchists. And I was wondering if your relationship uh, with Kwesi or your conversations had any influence on your politics. Yes, I mean, first of all, just asking about crazy, I have all these visions. He was such a life force, such a vibrant, creative, spirited, loving person. And uh, he did whistle to jazz tunes and did watercolor drawings. And uh, he was just this incredibly spirited person. And, you know, we had some good dialogue. One thing we shared is we both wanted to stand up for the principles of fighting racism, fighting imperialism, but analyze errors we made. You gave me a, a nice compliment about love and struggle because that's what I was trying to do, that there are lessons to learn from what we did right and lessons from what we did wrong. And Quasi was very much into that. We didn't have long ideological discussions about you know, Marxism, Leninism versus anarchism. So I don't know if I have more to say than what I did at the beginning, where it seems to me democratic centralism has led to excessive hierarchy, which is destructive. And I know you can be an anarchist and very well organized, but a lot of tendencies haven't been well organized and haven't recognized the leadership. So we grappled with that, not in an antagonistic way. We went back and forth on that. So Crazy was a tremendous influence, and I guess made me more open to anarchism because maybe my experience had been more with white groups that were a little bit and he struggled a lot with white anarchists to be much stronger about anti-imperialism and anti-racism and a lie uh, but it hasn't led to any grand resolution of those issues that I could put into a nutshell except to say I'm open to learning and I think it's worth saying that, you know, Kwesi eventually lost his life to an AIDS-related illness in 86. Um, and you mentioned before, you know, you were inside when the AIDS crisis hit. You know, what was it like being inside while that was happening? It was incredible. What an intense period of time. Up until Kwesi died, I sort of was vaguely aware that there was an AIDS epidemic going on and that that was a shame. Didn't quite understand that as a political issue. It, you know, before crazy, before he got that sick or we had, you know, any idea that he could have AIDS, he told me about going to sick call, and there were a couple of guys there who were thought to have AIDS, and the other guys were saying, Matter Cone, you know, faggot. And, you know, crazy tried to talk to those guys. You know, people were terrified about casual contact. And that was both stimulated by homophobia and intensified homophobia because to them people visibly that's who could be have AIDS which is ironic in addition to backward because in prison overwhelmingly it was IV drug use that was the basis for HIV 
So this is why peer education, which was also very important in the gay community, became essential in prison. And we had to fight for peer education programs. It's a longer story, and uh, some of it is in the interview Dan Berger did with me that's in uh, Rebellious Morning. Uh, I won't tell all the old war stories, but uh, in a way they use this thing of fear of casual contact because while they were stalling us and doing the education, they were granting every, every request we made to let the guys who identify with HIV come into population, like that, with no preparation. Fortunately, I had done some groundwork. It could have led to a real upheaval. Um, we, we, I mean, we have a zillion questions, but I know our time here is short. Right, right. Um, and right. so I, I really want to know, um, you know, we're talking about all of these complicated political situations, and, and things are pretty rough out there right now. And I'm wondering what gives you the most hope today that we, you know, will reach a more just future. I mean, hope. I have hope. That doesn't mean I'm optimistic. I was pretty optimistic in the 60s and 70s. The forces of destruction and hate that are in play now are very fierce and giant. But it's not hopeless. It's not. And given what's at stake for really the survival of our species and many other species, if there's any chance at all, we have to give it our best shot. And there are sources of hope. The main thing is the overwhelming majority of people of the world have a fundamental interest in radical change, revolutionary change. So what gives me hope? 300 million indigenous people around the world, many of whom are still guardians of nature and have international links. The Women Association of India that was marching recently, you know, the shack dwellers in South Africa are trying to get housing for the poorest people. The landless workers in Brazil who are trying to get land to grow food. Standing Rock, Black Lives Matter, Surge, the young people uh, against gun violence, the women's marches, the teacher strikes. But, and most directly and personally, the range of younger generation activists who are in touch with me, who you know, are wonderfully humane people, uh, we're people, who don't seem as arrogant as we were when we were young activists. Uh, but there's a lot of struggle, within, even within the United States, which is a backwater, you know, the most technologically advanced, or it was, but uh, the most socially and politically backward. Uh, there's been an incredible series of eruptions of protests, you know, and some really that there's some real human decency, the demonstrations in 700 cities against separating migrant children from their parents, the women's marches and all the teacher strikes, and they're still kind of siloed a single issue. There needs to be more of an understanding that these problems emerge out of the basic power relations in society for two reasons. If you just think it's a single issue, you're going to get demoralized when the demonstrations or the protests don't bring about change because you don't realize how difficult it is. But also those movements could ally into, not merge, but ally into a much bigger anti-system movement that would be a lot stronger. It has to be anti-militarism, there has to be anti-nationalism for that to work. So even within the United States, there's still a lot of human decency and a level of activism that's re-emerged. Long way to go for it to be effective, but it's something to work with. 
All right. So, um, David and I have a segment on our show, and it's called Shkoyach, which is a Yiddish phrase, which people say sometimes in synagogue as a congratulation or a big ups, if you will. And so David and I on each show, we each give our own shkoyach, and we also have a negative one, so we can give a negative shkoyach, which doesn't exist, but we created it. If I can be a little <laughs> bit undisciplined in terms of what you're raising, there's yeah. one major point that I thought would come up that didn't. Oh, So let sure. me talk about that, and that's the way anti-Semitism is being used as a cudgel against opposing Zionism. That sounds like an anti-shkoyach. <laughs> yes, and my Yiddish is lacking, so I wasn't prepared for that. But, uh, boy, am I terrible with languages. I never learned Yiddish. I never learned Spanish. But anyways, I'm, but this is a really big thing that's happening now. And irony isn't the word for the mega chutzpah, that the forces that are attacking Congresswoman Oma are people who have allied with the most fundamental anti-Semitic forces and tropes. And I think that Israel itself is an anti-Semitic force and power, both because they ally with Poland, Hungary, Saudi Arabia, and the alt-right in the U.S. and forces that were charitable, evangelical Christians who want Jews to control Israel so that the end of times can come, at which time all Jews go to hell. And Netanyahu's son himself put on this thing on the internet about George Soros manipulating political figures. The most fundamental anti-Semitic trope that gets refurbished and brought back is the elders of the protocols of the elders of Zion. And of course, the resurrection or continuation of the protocols of Zion, elders of Zion is George Soros is manipulating everything. You have one rich person who's giving to liberal causes, and not even very radical. And here you have Israel not only validating that, but actually promoting that view of George Soros with the puppet master. And George Soros is not behind the caravans of people who are trying to migrate, and there are so many more right-wing billionaires who are influencing politics and contributing to candidates. And again, it's what we said about fascism in general. It takes the ruling class and capitalism off the hook, and it diverts people's attention. So one is just a mega hypocrisy that very vehement anti-Semitic forces are sort of criticizing anybody who's anti-Zionist, and that Israel is down with that and promotes it. Israel also is a force for anti-Semitism in its betrayal of the Jewish tradition of social justice. And incidentally, it's not a very good strategy for the Jewish people to to oppress other people. But that that's that's. Sacred. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> yeah, that's not to say there isn't some anti-Semitism in the anti-Zionist movement and in the left. I mean, I think the left, because there's such a large presence of Jews, is less anti-Semitic than certainly than the right or other segments. But I wouldn't say it never cropped up, and it should be challenged when it happens. It shouldn't be done to overwhelm opposing Zionism. You know, to me, as I said about my lessons about racism, the two go together. My staunch anti-anti-Semitism makes me staunch anti-Zionist. And when there is anti-Semitism in our ranks, we've got to take that on too. Uh, 
What was the Yiddish word for? Shkoyach. The Shmashkoyer is love can defeat hate. That our sense of humanity is bound up with everybody else and with the natural world. And this can be awakened in everyone if there's a chance and there's an opportunity. And if we create a world where people have a chance to develop their creative powers, we can solve all kinds of problems. So yes, I'm anti-imperialist, as I said at the beginning, but that means that I'm for humanity and for nature. And we have that potential and we're up against some major, major obstacles, but uh, if we pull together, we can do it. Well, I think that's the most perfect way to end this conversation. Um, David, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us and, and answering our letters, and it felt really special to be able to chat with you here. Well, great. Thank you for making the journey, and I know coming to a prison, you have to cross not just physical barriers, but emotional barriers to come in. My name is Sasha Berenstein from Seattle, Washington, and I'm calling you to let you all know about a Yiddish language project I'm working on that I'm really excited about. A list of trans and non-binary vocabulary in Yiddish that I spearheaded, translated, and created with folks in the Yiddish's community and from my trans and non-binary communities. The first version of this list was recently published by Yiddish Liga, the League for Yiddish, on March 31st for Trans Day of Visibility, and I'm hoping that this is the start of a much longer, overdue project around empowerment and acceptance of people of all gender identities in the Yiddish-speaking communities, and will eventually be expanded to include queer and polyamorous vocabulary. You can check out the trans and non-binary vocab list on the League for Yiddish Twitter and Facebook pages. And for this project specifically and more like it, find me on Twitter at Berenstein Sasha, B-E-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N-S-A-S-H-A. A shenam dank and a zisen Pesach for alle. Thank you so much and a sweet Pesach to everyone. Stephen Miller's a herb. White nationalists are a plague. It's time for Shkoyach. Shkoyach! Shkoyach. Welcome to Shkoyach, everyone's second favorite segment of the show. People actually stop us on the street and tell us how good Shkoyach is. I'm going to have to look that up at Snopes.com. Uh, but Sam. <laughs> yes, David. What is your Shkoyach for today? I have a double positive Shkoyach. Oh, that's great. I know. Just bringing in the positivity. Yeah, we need it. It's spring. Uh, good back exercises. We did a wonderful interview. I'm just coming in with the positivity. The people demand a positive Shkoyach. <laughs> that's what people stop me on the street and ask me about. Uh, a likely story. <laughs> um, Sam, what do you got for us today? Well... I'm going to give my first shkoyach to everybody's favorite Jewish anarchist collective, Judas. Oh, yeah, definitely my favorite. 
you're not alone and and you are never alone if you listen to so called's music but um wait what <laughs> it's a song that he wrote <laughs> Anyways, uh, so I'm going to give my first score to Judas's Haggadah. Oh, yeah. Haggadah. Since uh, we had the honor of submitting a small contribution to this Haggadah. So I was going to give praise before we mentioned the fact that we were asked to be part of it, but uh, sure. Very I mean, unethical, very unethical. <laughs> call the um, ethics department. At CKOT upstairs. <laughs> Anyways, um, they put out a Haggadah. I think every year we are rifling through folders and drives and printed envelopes looking for various Haggadahs to help us in our seders. The normative yellow and brown one just doesn't cut it anymore. In fact, it probably never cut it, but this this one looks great. And it's hilarious. I would say nine out of 10 lols. Um, oh, so close. No, I don't know. It's just, it's weird to give people 10 out of 10, you know? Is this like withholding dad trading? No, no. I, I don't know. Give them a 10 on 10. I'm a pushover. Anyways, on their website, they talk about how it's fully ready for use at your next Passover Seder. It contains an authorized guide to Jewish practice in the late capitalist era and assorted tips for surviving establishment Judaism. So my first shkoyach is kind of a plug for the Judas Haggadah. What's the second one? The second one is is kind of in the theme of positive Jewish things that are printed in books. Okay, that's very specific. <laughs> and it is a call for submissions to an anthology that Cindy Milstein is putting together. Oh, yeah, I saw that. So the anthology is called There is Nothing So Whole as a Broken Heart, Mending the World as Queered Anarcha-Jews. And in the call, Cindy mentions that she's looking for fiction, nonfiction, and dreamy in-between stories by queered anarcha-Jews. And that she's seeking storytelling that reflects the way that we Jews slash anarchists question, debate, and continually rethink our ideas and practices. Um, so wait, how can people contribute stuff? Okay, David, there's this thing. It's called electronic mail. <laughs> and how it works is kind of like a postal system. I'm with you so far. Okay, so imagine you want to write, I don't know, me, for example. I live about 15 blocks away from you. The inheritor of the big pen fortune. <laughs> so what you do is you write an address... In this case, it's cbmilstein at yahoo.com. And we're going to put this in the show notes. You put that address in the email address section, mm -hmm. and then you write a message to Cindy. All right. I might need some tech support, but it sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, this anthology looks really interesting. Cindy's a terrific human. You should check out the call out, see if some work you're doing or have done kind of fits this mold. And uh, yeah, send an email to cbmilstein at yahoo.com. And uh, just go out to Cindy for being Cindy. Yeah, so that was a really nice uh, positive shkoyach. Riding the positivity train, David. Mm -hmm. Are you going to help us continue to maintain a three out of three positive shkoyach rating? I think so. Although such things, I think, are subjective at the end of the day. <laughs> but uh, my shkoyach today is to a book called The War Before by Sophia Bakari. Uh, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking about the Black Liberation Army. Sophia was a member of the Black Liberation Army. She was a member of the New York chapter of the Black Panthers. Um, and she was uh, a former political prisoner. And this book came out in 2010, and it's a collection of her writings and some of her speeches over the years. That sounds like a shkoyach that is very much in your wheelhouse, David. Um, what what part of the book felt so meaningful to you? I mean, I just found, I found reading it really moving. Um, you know, how much she put on the line, how much she sacrificed, um, along with many others. I think it was both moving, but also very grounding for me. I think it's very easy, uh, especially for those of us who are white, it's very easy to sort of take a role in political struggles uh, that can be very safe and distant. And this book is so grounded in the realities of struggle uh, during a very difficult period, uh, one that's really defined by backlash and imprisonment. And so being able to read through her work and understand her life just gave me a lot of inspiration and I think was a really moving experience. 
And and so for folks who haven't heard of Sofia Bukhari before or who don't really know about her life, could you give folks a little taste? Um, in terms of her political work, uh, she was a political prisoner for about eight years. She was released in 1983. And after that, she sort of became one of the main people supporting political prisoners of the Black liberation struggle. Um, and it's at this time that she founded the Jericho Movement for political prisoners with Jalil Muntakim, who's another uh, former BLA member who's still inside. Uh, she was involved in Malcolm X grassroots movement. Uh, she had a prison radio show. She co-founded the New York Coalition of Free Mumia Abu-Jamal. She was a central figure in the infrastructure of supporting political prisoners in the United States. So for someone who was so central to these movements, David, why do you think this book didn't come out sooner? Well, there's multiple answers to that, but I think the most pertinent one is that she actually died in in 2003. And at that point, her daughter actually approached Laura Whitehorn to help track down uh, some of her writing and sort of edit together a volume of her work. Okay. It, It seems like most of her writing actually wasn't intended to be released as like a book or a tract or anything like that. There were sort of writings for specific movement activities, like there were for speeches or, or an event or, or you know things like this. And so Laura actually has this very moving intro where she describes uh, both their relationship, they were, they were friends, and, and also why Sophia's writing hadn't been released in any form before this. And, and so it's an, it's an interesting project of sort of lacing together these disparate writings into a cohesive book. Oh, that's exciting. So big square to Sophia Bukhari and I guess side square to Laura Whitehorn. Yeah, double square. So four for four on positivity, David. We did it. They said it couldn't be done. So that's our show today. A huge thanks to everybody who made this interview with David Gilbert possible. Um, we're not sure if we can thank you by name, so we're not going to. And also, thank you so much to David Gilbert for talking to us, for answering our letters, and for generously sharing ideas and experiences with us at Wednesday last month. You know, closer to home here, uh, the Quebec government has recently passed a new wave of anti-Muslim legislation. We don't have a lot new to say about this. It isn't already being said by Muslim activists here in the city. Um, If you're unfamiliar with this, you don't know what we're talking about, you can listen to old episodes that we had specifically about this that we'll have in the show notes too, um, as well as links to updates as to what exactly is happening right now. And as always, please give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you can, help us out on Patreon. It keeps the lights on at Trafe Headquarters, and uh, it's greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Trafe Podcast is Sam Beck and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thanks to everyone who helps make Trafe Podcast happen. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and now Instagram at Trafe Podcast, T-R-E-Y-F, and send us comments, suggestions, or hate mail to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon.
wrote in the book about debating Lyndon LaRouche. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, no, it was it was insane. Uh, but it wasn't very long before they were coming with axe handles and breaking up like, meetings and stuff uh, like yeah. that. There yeah. are still LaRoucheites ah, in Montreal. On the street corners. Yeah, they were well-funded. 